Hello and welcome to Power Pros Podcast, episode 157. I'm your host, the Hoff, Chris Hoffman, and on this occasion it is just me hosting the show. Nonetheless, I am here to bring you the latest happenings in the world of Nintendo, and by that I mean game impressions, news, and of course, our big topic, which this week is the 20th anniversary of The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, which hit the Nintendo 64 in North America back on November 23rd, 1998. But, before we get to that, let's kick things off with some game impressions, starting with Diablo 3 for the Nintendo Switch. Now, I have never played Diablo 3 before. I might not have ever played the Diablo game before. But so far, playing Diablo 3 on the Switch, I'm having a pretty good time. Now, at first, when I put the game in and I fired it up, it was just really confusing. I started trying to play the game and I just got a ton of messages about new features and expansions and add-on content and gelatinous sires and greater rift keys and seasons. Like, season 15 is ongoing, join in now. And I had no idea what any of that stuff meant. And I was kind of in danger of my head just exploding. So what I did was I just tried to ignore all that and just play a normal standard game for my first attempt. And so that's what I did. I chose a male wizard and I named him Bob. And then what I discovered is that, you know, this is a game that beyond all that crazy stuff at the beginning is actually very, very accessible and very playable. The character movement is extremely fluid. It has a really great frame rate. Of course, there are lots of weapons and armor and accessories to collect. And there's a ton of detail packed into the backgrounds. And a good number of those backgrounds involve destructible objects, too. As a wizard, I was built for ranged attacks. And so I just tried to stay back and blast my enemies with projectiles or freeze them with ice magic. And it was solid fun. For years, just watching from the sidelines, I've thought that Diablo looked like a modern incarnation of Gauntlet, and that is not a dig. That is a good thing as far as I'm concerned, because I loved the classic Gauntlet games in arcades and on the NES. And it turns out that that kind of really is what Diablo is all about, only without the endlessly spawning monster generators. Anyway, I was having a good time playing the game solo, and then my friend decided to join in. Now, he had already started a save file on his profile, but by this point, I was already further in the game than he was, so he just decided to join in my game for some local co-op. And it was very simple and seamless and super easy to do, and it was just as simple for him to drop out when he was done. What's important, though, is that Diablo 3 was actually way, way more fun in a multiplayer session. And it ran just as smoothly with two players. And from here on out, that is certainly how I would prefer to experience the game. I haven't had a chance to play multiplayer online yet, but I hope that it runs just as smoothly because I know I'm not always going to have my friends around to play local co-op. But yeah, multiplayer Diablo is definitely where it's at, as I'm sure anyone who's already played the game already knows. Regardless, it's a fun time. It seems to be a very solid, polished, well-made version of this beloved franchise on Switch. The story is a little bit generic, but I'm glad to finally see what the fuss is all about, and I certainly would not mind playing more. Hopefully next time I can check out that Ganondorf armor. In addition to Diablo 3, I have also been playing the SNK 40th Anniversary Collection for Switch. 
This game, when you include the free downloadable DLC that was available on day one, includes 21 titles. And this isn't just the usual SNK Neo Geo stuff that you associate with the company. This is primarily arcade and NES games that have never been re-released in many cases. The full list so far includes Alpha Mission for Arcade and NES, Athena for Arcade and NES, Crystallis for the NES, Guerrilla War for both NES and Arcade, Akari Warriors 1, 2, and 3, and that includes both NES and Arcade for all those titles, Iron Tank for NES, POW for NES and Arcade, Prehistoric Isle from the Arcades, Psycho Soldier from the Arcades, the Arcade version of Street Smart, the arcade version of TNK3, which is basically an arcade version of Iron Tank. Those two games are very, very similar. And then last but not least, the arcade version of Vanguard, the classic shooter. That game, by the way, the artwork for it ranks right up there with Phalanx, as in it features this wrinkled old geezer shooting lasers from his eyes. There's no banjo involved, but it's some pretty ridiculous art for a classic shooter. That aside, you know, a lot of these games... Honestly, they don't hold up very well. It's arguable that some of them were never that good. But on the other hand, there is definitely some good stuff. Arguably, the best game in here is the NES version of Crystallis, which is a classic action RPG that's never been re-released on Virtual Console or anything like that. I also really enjoyed the shooter Prehistoric Isle, which I am not terribly familiar with. And I also got a kick out of playing almost all of the old NES games again, even if a lot of the appeal is just pure nostalgia. Akari Warriors 1, though, the NES version of that, oh man, it is terrible. It is sluggish and not fun at all. That is definitely the low point of this collection so far. However, what's really important, I would say, is that all of these games are here in all of their original glory. So if you haven't played these for a long, long time, you know, this gives you the chance and there are a ton of options packed into this collection. You can adjust the screen size, you can add filters, you can have wallpaper, you can change the controls, you can change the difficulty. There is a rewind function and there's save states to help curb some of that ancient, ancient, old school difficulty. There is a massive timeline with a full history and description for every game that SNK made up to 1990. There's also an extensive gallery mode with art for all the games, a music player, photos of SNK cabinets, and more. And also, there's this really cool feature called Watch Mode, which is available for a lot of the titles in this collection, but not all of them. And that's basically a full playthrough that lets you watch the entire game. And not only does it sort of teach you how to play correctly, but you can actually jump into this video at any time and just take over and start playing from that point in the game. That is a really, really fantastic inclusion and something that pretty much any other collection from here on out, you know, that really raises the bar for what to expect from something like this. The one flaw in the gallery is that any mention of Nintendo has been expunged. The official Nintendo seal of quality and its logos on things like Game Boy games have been completely erased from existence. Also, uh, Lee Trevino's name has been removed from Lee Trevino's Fighting Golf, and I'm sure that's for legal reasons, but it's strange and it's sad that they have to rewrite history in ways like this. Also, when it comes to negative aspects, I did have the game lock up on me once, and Crystallis has some really awful scroll tearing right now, but reportedly, there's already a patch for that that has been submitted to fix this problem. Overall, while how fun this game is in 2018 is somewhat arguable, still, I would say as a lesson in gaming history, and just as a really well-made, well-put-together collection, I would say that this title is pretty much awesome. It is basically a must-have for video game historians. 
And speaking of playing retro games on Switch, there were also four brand new additions to the NES library from Nintendo Switch Online, those being Metroid, Mighty Bomb Jack, Twin B, and surprise, out of nowhere, Gradius SP. Metroid, as always, is a true classic. You know, this is the game that set the stage for everything to come, and while it might be a little frustrating if you don't have a PhD in Metroid, since this game does not have a built-in map, and it's not especially user-friendly, it is, nonetheless, still a lot of fun, and a game that pretty much everybody should play if they have not played it before. Uh, asterisk, unless you've already played through Zero Mission, I guess, then you get a buy. Mighty Bomb Jack, meanwhile, is a fairly simple platformer with very, very floaty jump mechanics and emphasis on avoiding foes rather than fighting them. I never cared for this game much back in the day, and I've only spent a little bit of time with it here, played through the first three levels or so, but I have to say, I still don't like it much now. I don't think I'm going to spend a whole lot of time with this one, but I guess we'll see. Twin B, on the other hand, is actually pretty solid. This is a classic top-down shooter that was never released in North America back on the NES, but it has been released in other forms since then, and it includes tried-and-true shooting mechanics with this bomb ability that lets you blast enemies they're attacking from below. The game really isn't half bad, and I will probably you know, try to spend some time with it if I can. Last but not least, there's this release of Gradius SP, and like The Legend of Zelda SP, which was released last month, this is basically a played-up save state. In this version of the game, you start on level 5 with all of your weapons, including missiles, lasers, options, and the shield. And I find it a little bit odd this is what they would do, since between the ability to power yourself up using the classic Konami code and the fact that you can use save states, it's really not very hard to get through this game if you don't feel like playing through it in you know the normal way and putting in all the effort. But uh, regardless, here you go. It's an easy way to check out some of the later stuff in Gradius. I would say it's a pretty decent selection of games this month. Nothing that really, I think, would make you subscribe to Nintendo Switch Online if you aren't a subscriber already, I would say. But there are some great additions for people who already have the service. That takes care of the game impressions for this episode. Let us move along to some news. The first news topic for this week is that Nintendo is releasing a new Super Mario Party bundle that includes green and yellow Joy-Cons. It's coming out very soon, probably around the time you'll be hearing this podcast on November 16th, and you can purchase this bundle for $100. As I said in my impressions of Super Mario Party a few weeks back, it is pretty much what you'd expect from a Mario Party game, so if that Floats your boat? Great. If that doesn't, well, you might want to stay away. But either way, if you are planning to get it, if you want some extra Joy-Cons for four-player mode, especially some very, very colorful Joy-Cons, this is a great way to do it and a great way to save some money in the process. It is about $40 cheaper than buying everything separately. Also in the news this week, YouTube is finally on Switch. At last. A highly requested video app on Switch. It's something that is more than Hulu. That's the good news. We finally got this app that so many people have been asking for for a long, long time. The bad news is that in my experience with the app so far, it is terrible. It absolutely sucks. So far, I can go to the main menu, but anytime I've tried to click on a video, I've gotten nothing but error messages and eternally spinning loading circles of doom. I let it run for like half an hour and nothing would load up. So I don't know if other people are having the same problem or somehow I'm just having a bunch of terrible, terrible luck, but 
you know, if this is happening to other people, the parties responsible really need to get their acts together ASAP because this is something we've all been waiting for, but we certainly want it to work. That would be really, really good. Of course, this week's news would not be complete without making mention of the fact that the trailer is now out for the Detective Pikachu movie. And if you have seen this, which I saw on YouTube on my computer, not YouTube on my Switch, I should mention, it is pretty much totally insane. Like the game, it tells the story of a young man who is looking for his missing father and he teams up with a talking Pikachu. And by that, yes, I mean a detective Pikachu that is voiced by Ryan Reynolds. And, you know, together they try to track his father down. So two things really stood out about this trailer. One, I like the casting choice for Tim, the main character, since he's a lot less generic than he is in the game. And more importantly, these realistic Pokemon designs and sort of bringing Pokemon into the real world is totally nuts. We have this fully realized world that's very much like the real world, and it is jam-packed and overflowing with all things Pokemon, including, of course, all these realistic takes on the classic Pokemon designs. And I've seen people having a field day with this all over social media, and I have to agree, it is sort of creepy. Not only is Pikachu all furry, but Jigglypuff is furry, Charizard is scaly, Psyduck has feathers. You know, I've always assumed that Pikachu and Jigglypuff were smooth and touching them would be sort of like touching a balloon or maybe a big yellow marshmallow or something. But no, they are all furry and it's kind of disturbing. And it also kind of looks like some sort of animatronic movie out of the 80s or like a bunch of Furbies are just suddenly walking around as people's pets. It's pretty bizarre. Now, I'm not saying the movie isn't going to be good. It very well might be good. I really did enjoy the game, and the trailer indicates that it's going to be fairly true, the source material, and there's even a fairly good chance I will see this movie when it comes out. But yeah, these realistic-looking Pokemon are certainly pretty much weirding me out. Uh, nonetheless, mark your calendars for May 10th, 2019, because that is when the movie comes out, so please look forward to it. That takes care of the news for this week, so I do believe it is time for us to take an intermission, and then we come back, we'll discuss this week's... Not so fast there, Huff. Pete, what what are you doing here? You aren't even on this week's show. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I had to pop by and hassle the Huff. Oh, man. Just when I thought I was going to... Okay. All right. I'll allow it. Uh, <laughs> go ahead. What do you have for me this week? <laughs> All right. Dear Video Game Professor Hoffman, mm -hmm. if you could choose one Zelda game to have a secret, hidden, extra quest, but in making this deal with the devil, or tingle as it were, you could no longer play other Zeldas, would you do it? And what Zelda would it be? Huh. Well, I suppose the obvious answer is no. No, I wouldn't do it, because <laughs> I really like all the Zelda games for the most part, and I would want to keep playing all the Zelda games. I want to play all the Zelda games from the past. I want to play all the Zelda games in the future. I have older games I want to replay that I've been meaning to play through multiple times, like Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons and other games as well. But for the sake of this question, <laughs> let me think about you know, what game I would pick that I would like to see a secret second quest to. Can you imagine Tingle just popping out of nowhere and stroking his mustache while he's um, I'm going to envision Tingle popping out of nowhere and stroking your mustache. He does have a pencil-thin mustache, right? He has some facial hair in some incarnations. All right. But I think usually it's just a goatee. 
Well, I wouldn't want him stroking my mustache. <laughs> uh, for the record, I'm going to officially say he does not have a mustache, but he does have a soul patch. Ah, okay. I remember. I remember he had some sort of facial hair. All right. Um, well, I mean, part of me is tempted to say A Link to the Past because that's my all-time favorite Zelda game, and who wouldn't want more of that? Right. But we did already get A Link Between Worlds, which in some ways is kind of like already having a second quest. It's true. Uh, likewise, with Ocarina of Time, there's the Master Quest mode, and so that's pretty much like having a second quest in there. And then part of me wants to just say Breath of the Wild, because you know that is such a great game, and I feel like there's a lot of different things they could try with the formula, but I'm not really sure how they would really change it up in a second quest without doing something you know, just that's basically completely radical and different and essentially a sequel. I mean, just having the shrines in different locations and the Divine Beasts in different locations with some different puzzles inside really wouldn't change around the game that much. So I think I might actually pick Wind Waker. You know, because of the island-based design, I think that could lend itself to some really interesting things by rearranging the islands or maybe changing out some of the islands, changing the locations of the towns and dungeons and things like that. And that's one that really hasn't had any sort of a remixed version going on. So I think that one could be really, really interesting. I mean, because of my love of Twilight Princess and the stipulations you put in, you know, I, I, now I'm kind of leaning back towards that. But uh, again, I just really like the Wind Waker concept. Yeah, I think if I had to make this choice, I'd probably go with Wind Waker as well. Just because that game does, like you said, there's just not a lot of... Uh, additional content for it and they never really went back and explored much so mm -hmm. it does feel like it would be the game that would deserve sort of like a secret hidden quest we will accept that answer that's uh that's good okay all right glad <laughs> to hear it nicely done okay so with that out of the way we will definitely take an intermission now and then when we come back we will discuss this week's big topic which is the 20th anniversary of the legend of zelda ocarina of time All right, we are back, and we are ready to discuss this week's big topic, which is the 20th anniversary of The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. You know, we were just having a 20th anniversary celebration of the Game Boy Color on the last episode, and now here we are with another huge 20th anniversary celebration, this time for one of the most beloved games of all time, Ocarina of Time. Yeah, what are you trying to do, make me feel old? Uh, yes, that's exactly my plan, Pete. I hope it's working. Yeah, it's like these uh, Facebook reminders, like, oh, you were friends with this person for 10 years. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, we've been uh, friends with Ocarina of Time for even longer than that. Yeah, a full two decades. 
And I figure the best way to celebrate that is to sort of look back at that grandiose adventure and pick out some of the most memorable moments in semi-chronological order of this wondrous adventure. All right, sounds good. Let's do it. And just to get this out of the way up front, there will definitely be spoilers here. If somehow you have gone 20 years without playing through Ocarina of Time, be warned, you will totally be spoiled by this discussion. You've been warned. So I guess we'll start out here with what I consider to be one of the most emotionally powerful moments in Ocarina of Time, or for that matter, in any Legend of Zelda game. And that would be when Link says goodbye to his friend Saria. Yeah, this one definitely stuck with me, too. Uh, when I saw it on the list, I was thinking, well, yeah, that stays with you, right? Yeah, I mean, this is something that you know has really you know stayed with me for these past two decades. And this, you know, really powerful but understated connection that these two characters share. You know, first, you know, it establishes them as friends. And then after you complete that first dungeon, basically, it's time for Link to leave the forest. And, you know, they sort of have that brief parting of ways, that realization that Link is going to go out and sort of grow up and go away while Saria is going to stay young like the Kokiri do and you know she'll just you know do that forever and Link is going to go off and live his life and it's a very emotional goodbye even without a whole lot of dialogue yeah she basically just kind of appears while you're crossing the bridge and that's kind of it well I mean she does give you that ocarina you get your first ocarina from her when they part ways and that's really important but uh, yeah I mean there really isn't a whole lot that's said, but there's a lot of really powerful emotion underneath. That's very clear. Yeah, she looks at you with her sad 64-bit eyes. <laughs> uh, yeah. But then they do actually end up getting reunited seven years later when Link is an adult, and they meet again after you complete the Forest Temple. So it's like, wow, this is great. You know, these two friends that seemed like we're never going to, you know, be together again are now reunited, and then all of a sudden, they, like, slap you in the face. They're like, no, sorry, is a sage. She has to live in sage land now. You'll never get to see her again either. And, uh, you know, she has to go do her thing while you continue to be a hero. And so, like, after that first one, which was pretty sad, they have the second one, which is, like, totally gut-wrenching. And it's like, you know, again, a really uh, emotional and thus memorable scene. It's true. Wait, do you live in sage land yet? Uh, no. Unfortunately for you, I'm still here on Earth. <laughs> As a side note, uh, another part that was really memorable to me, you know, sort of relating to that section of the game, is when you come back to the forest as an adult and you encounter Mido, and he sort of confesses to Link about how he actually misses Link and, you know, sort of, you know, was sorry that he was a jerk for everything he did without actually saying any of that stuff. And that's <laughs> another really cool emotional moment involving the Kokiri. Yeah, you're right. Because he is a jerk. <laughs> That is true. So, on to memorable moment number two. The next one is encountering the Gorons and the Zoras for the first time. Yeah, I think what stands out to me the most about these encounters is the atmosphere that they kind of created in these uh, 3D worlds for the first time in Zelda. Oh, what do you mean? Uh, you know, the uh, the kind of the background music and uh, the Gorons are rolling around and you're like, what the <laughs> yep. heck are these things? And then... Zora, same thing. You kind of get this like instrumental, like people playing harps, and it looks like uh, you know some kind of grotto, and there's a bunch of fish-like creatures in the water. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, basically, what it did 
is that with this game, it really expanded the world of The Legend of Zelda. You know, in the older games, it was pretty much just monsters and humans for the most part. Yep. But, you know, encountering these different races, the Gorons and the Zora, with their own, you know, distinct cultures and way of living, and like you're saying, the music and all that stuff, you know, having the Gorons living in Death Mountain, having the Zoras in Zora's domain, it really fleshed out this, you know, 3D world. I mean, the 3D in itself made this version of Hyrule feel like more of a living, breathing place. But adding these different kinds of creatures in there, you know, just doing their thing and living their lives, you know, took it really to the next level. I think that was maybe even more important than uh, the technology involved. Yeah, you're right. Up to that point, there isn't anything like that. You know, in the first Zelda, you kind of just run into an old man (laughs) Mm -hmm. over and over. Um, And some (laughs) of the other ones, there are these, uh, you know, different encounters. But uh, but yeah, this is like the first true, like, wow, this is a different culture. You know, the Gorons are rolling around and whacking into things. And (laughs) yeah, and then the, uh, the Zora want you to high dive off stuff, so... Yeah, it's definitely not what you would expect from your regular NPC encounters in The Legend of Zelda. You know, there were definitely, you know, towns and communities in, you know, especially Zelda 2 and also Link to the Past, but, uh, you know, nothing that was fleshed out, you know, to this regard. Right. Uh, moving on to our next memorable moment, that would be, you know, using the Ocarina of Time, uh, entering the Temple of Time, and jumping forward seven years into the future. You know, obviously the game is called Ocarina of Time. That is a key tool in the game, and it is indeed presented in a way that earns itself that place in the game's title. Like, for one thing, there's that really memorable scene where Zelda is fleeing the castle, and she's with Impa. Obviously, she's still a child, and, you know, Ganondorf is in hot pursuit, and uh, Link just sort of is approaching him. And that's really like the first encounter between Ganondorf and Link. And Link's just a kid, and Ganondorf's like, I'm going off and doing my thing. <laughs> I believe that's where we have that infamous, you want a piece of me line. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, so that's a memorable part. Maybe not for the best reason, but that's you know, certainly memorable. <laughs> uh, but then after that, that leads into you getting the ocarina that Zelda you know, throws into the moat. And so you get that. You're able to you know, go to the Temple of Time. You're able to uh, you know, break the seal and you're ready to lay claim to the Master Sword. And it's like, okay, all right, I'm accomplishing things. I'm you know, making this quest move forward. I'm going to you know, stop Gandor from getting the Triforce. <laughs> and then they have that big twist where it's like, oh, guess what? You guys really did the wrong thing. Now Gandorf is able to get in here, and he gets the Triforce. And the next thing you know, it's uh, seven years later, and he's taken over. And there's Redead walking around the town, and dogs and cats (laughs) living together, mass hysteria. I mean, to be honest, I don't think that the world is that insane compared to what it could be you know with gandorf taking over it's true. i mean hyrule castle obviously that's been completely wiped out and replaced um but you know, a lot of the world isn't that destroyed but still just the twist involved with the, you know him you know sort of outwitting you you lead him to the triforce basically and just you know all those scenes involving that i just think are really really great yeah totally for that matter, uh, just encountering Ganon when he like uh, when you see him approaching the king through the window, that's a pretty dramatic moment as well. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a good one. I mean, that's really the first time you see him, and it is kind of crazy because up until then you knew that he was a thief named Ganondorf, and he later became you know Ganon, the king of evil. But that is really the first time you see him, and you know you even realize how clever he is because you know you're just kind of spying through the window, and you know even though he's doing other things, he totally notices you. So yeah, that is definitely a great moment as well. That's right. 
Yeah, I think what was so cool for me was that you play the first part of the game and, you know, you're, you're going around collecting these uh, stones and it, it takes a decent amount of time. And then at that mm-hmm. point, you kind of realize like, holy crap, this is like the part where in James Bond movies, like all of a sudden you see the title and you're like, wow, this movie's not even close <laughs> to over, but it's been awesome so far. Yeah, it's kind of true. Mm-hmm. It really is just you know, setting up everything until that point, And that's really when the adventure kicks off. But uh, yeah, it is a huge shock if you're not expecting it for sure. Now, even though it is this huge, grand, vast adventure, I would say that another one of the most memorable moments would be when you just decide to, you know, take a little break from your adventuring. Just sort of kick back, relax, and visit the fishing hole. That's right. Fishing was a huge part of this game. Yes, it absolutely was. I mean, it was memorable just because it let you sort of you know, kick back and not have to worry about uh, all the cataclysmic events that are going on. But also, you know, it was just a really cool and fun and well-made minigame. Yeah, I mean, up to this point, there was definitely no uh, fishing minigames in any Zelda games. Well, there have been a little tiny one in Link's Awakening, uh, yeah. but it was so simple, you know, it really didn't count. This was where we really got it for the first time. And I think that's why it hooked so many people, you could say. (laughs) Well, at that point, at least as far as home console games, I had never really played anything that was like a good fishing simulator. And like, (laughs) that's true. And it sounds funny, but it, you know, this even with the uh, Rumble Pack, or should I say the Stone of Agony, (laughs) uh, you know, kind of allowed you to to really get a, a real fishing experience with reeling and everything. Yep, that's true. Although I have to admit, I barely even used the Rumble Pack when I played this game. That probably made it a lot more challenging for me. Because as fun as it was to do the fishing, you know, getting some of those uh, really big fish could be you know, super tough. And especially there's the big one that you need for the golden scale towards the end of the game. <laughs> that's right. That was always a very frustrating one for me. <laughs> yeah, I think there was like certain tricks for it. Like you could go stand on a branch out in the water and he hung out in a certain spot. But yeah. Kind of funny that it was like actually needed to uh, be a completionist in the game. Yep, yep. And there were other secret things going on in the fishing hole, which I can't remember if I ever completed those or not. But uh, regardless of that, yeah, the fishing was you know very fun, typically relaxing, and just stood out for you know being this you know whole game within a game that could be really really super engrossing. <laughs> yeah, I remember like sometimes just with my friends like trying to catch the biggest fish over like the course <laughs> yep, of an hour or yep. two. Yep, it was definitely a great inclusion. And also, I'm going to just say, I wish that Breath of the Wild had expanded the fishing a little bit. You know, really, you just grab fish out of the water. But uh, <laughs> it feels like it was really lacking a, a true fishing simulator the way Ocarina had. Yeah, you make a good point. I mean, ever since Ocarina of Time, pretty much every Zelda game comes out and people are like, where's the fishing game? Where's the fishing game? That's kind of the one thing that was missing from Breath of the Wild. It's true. So moving on to the next memorable moment would be one of my favorite dungeons in any Zelda game, and I think I would certainly have to say my favorite dungeon in this game, and that would be the Forest Temple. Ah, yeah. What in particular stands out about the Forest Temple to you? I mean, there's so many things. It's complex, it's creepy, it's innovative, and it's weird. Like, the things that stand out to be the most are probably that weird, warping, twisting hallway, and also, you know, there's like a bunch of wall masters you have to deal with in certain parts. <laughs> yep. Plus, there's that whole, you know, basically, you know, mini quest within a dungeon where you have to track down those four poses. 
That's right. The poses, uh, that, that whole thing is really weird and creepy, but fun. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of creepy moments in this game, to be honest. And a forest really isn't where you would expect to find a lot of the creepier stuff. You would think that would be in the spirit temple or shadow temple or whatever. And, you know, there is creepy stuff there. <laughs> but yeah, the forest temple is surprisingly creepy. Yeah, right. And the one thing that kind of stays with me is the music. The background music in that level is really, really cool. I like it. I can still think of it. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, another aspect that's really cool is the boss. It is a super memorable one. That is where you have to face off against Phantom Ganon, who charges out of those paintings. Oh, yeah. And that's like a much harder battle than I think most people are ready for at that point in the game. Yeah, I remember having a lot of trouble with it the very first time I played. I mean, once I learned that you could sort of have a safe spot and, you know, avoid him when he does those charges, it becomes a lot easier. But the first time before I knew about that, it's like, oh, man, this is certainly the toughest battle yet. Yeah, I mean, the way I always kind of handled it was you kind of run and look and you're trying to watch the pictures to see which one he's going to come out of. And then, mm -hmm. you know, it's just funny because you really have to play with the camera a lot to get the best perspective because sometimes, uh, you know, you're like, oh, man, <laughs> I was looking at the wrong one. But if you can position yourself where you're like right between the two paintings so he's not going to hit you, you can just sort of play the waiting game and take him out that way. It's good to know. Yeah. Of course, in that battle, there's also a little bit of foreshadowing for the final battle. Yes, that's true. Kind of funny. You basically have to use your sword to project his projectile back at him, mm -hmm. as has happened in a few Zelda games. Yep. And yeah, a little bit throwing it back to, uh, again, the foreshadowing of the uh, final battle. Yep, which makes perfect sense since it is, you know, Phantom Ganon. <laughs> now, when you face Ganon in that fight, you know, he is charging out of the paintings on horseback. But another super memorable moment in the game is, of course, when you, when Link himself, gets his own horse. Ah, uh, yes. Epona. Yes. Epona, certainly one of the biggest additions to the game. I mean, it's cool to be able to run across Hyrule on foot and sort of explore that world, but it's also really, really cool to be able to travel across on horseback. And you know, even though I personally find horses scary, <laughs> it is very nice to do that. It just sort of brings out this air of majesty and vastness to the world. Yeah, I mean, finding Epona and kind of learning the horse mechanics in this game, it was pretty mind-blowing back in the day. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and now when you look at the state of video games, there's been dozens of games that have also had a horse. <laughs> but I feel like Ocarina was really one of the first to really do it in 3D like that. Yeah, it's certainly the first time I remember. Yeah, you know, all the popularity, Red Dead Redemption 2, it pretty much started here, yeah. <laughs> you know, just saying. Well, of course, it also introduced that little, you know, kind of side mini game where you're trying to eat the carrots to make her go faster, but you don't want to eat too many carrots because then you go slow for a long time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you do have to keep an eye on that meter. And then, of course, you have to beat Mario and Luigi in a race. Yeah, that was one of the things I thought was really great about Epona is that, you know, first you establish that connection with her when you're a child, you know, pretty early on, and that's when uh, Malin and Talon are running the ranch. And then later on, you come back as an adult, and you have to fight Ingo, the Luigi character for it. And that is the part that really sticks with me more than anything. I mean, as much as I remember, you know, just, you know, riding across Hyrule to go on my quest, it's when you have that race against Ingo, and you win the race, then he betrays you, and then you have to escape and jump over the wall. And like that scene, that shot of, you know, Link and Epona jumping over the wall, you know, that is one that has, again, stuck with me for all these years. Yeah, it really is a pretty cool moment, you know, when you think about it like that. 
mm-hmm. definitely stuck with me as well. Yeah, just pretty much etched into my brain. <laughs> Along with all the boss battles from Mega Man 2. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But another great moment in Ocarina of Time, for me, is the spooky well. <laughs> Please go on. Tell me more about this spooky well. Well, that is the one with the sign nearby that says, Dark, Narrow, Scary, Well of Three Features. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Which, for my money, is one of the greatest descriptions ever written for a video game. <laughs> that is pretty good. That cracks me up every time. But, you know, even though the description is humorous, once you actually get to go down the well, it is, you know, anything but comical down there. In fact, it's actually pretty horrifying. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And then I think to make matters even worse, you have to do it when you're a little kid. Yes, that is true. But yeah, you go down there and it's basically a torture chamber hidden underneath the village. Yeah, you're young links, so you're armed with like a slingshot and a wooden sword. <laughs> yeah, you don't have your best equipment. And uh, yeah, you know, just seeing all of this, uh, you know, creepy stuff down there. It's like, what was going on? If you really think about it, it's like, you know, what was happening underneath this village? That is kind of horrifying. We, we don't talk about that anymore, Chris. <laughs> but, uh, you know, once you're able to, you know, overcome all that stuff, you get the chance to find the lens of truth, which lets you see invisible objects, which is also cool in of itself. Yeah, the eye of truth definitely is one of the more interesting items in the game. Yeah. Of course, you know, you primarily use it with the spirit temple. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in general, it's also a, just a pretty cool idea and how they execute it is great. Yes, it's always fun to use it for cheating at the mini games. <laughs> exactly. All right. Moving on. Another great memorable moment is infiltrating the Gerudo Fortress. Ah, yeah. Another song that absolutely sticks out in my head is the... Yeah, the Gerudo Valley music is very close to being my favorite music in the game. Yeah, that is a great one. But is that actually playing when you're doing the Fortress Infiltration? Yeah, I think you're right. They do not play that during that time, I don't believe. But you do have to hear it to get there. (laughs) This is true. This is very true. But yeah, you know, normally I don't really like having stealth areas in my non-stealth games. (laughs) But I do really, really like it in this one. Just sneaking around the Fortress and trying to get through it without being caught is a fun and unique challenge. And it's very rewarding to be able to just sort of, uh, you know, sneak through there, save those prisoners. And then when you do have to face an opponent in combat, you know, being able to defeat them uh, blade to blade and uh, overcome that challenge. And it's just, you know, a very unique and different part of the game. And, you know, despite being sort of out of character for the adventure, a whole lot of fun. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there are a couple other sneak parts in this game where you you know try to get into Hyrule Castle and all that. Right, right. It's true. And then, of course, this kind of set the trend for other sneaking parts in other Zelda games. I suppose that's true as well. But uh, I think that you know very few of them have come close to the appeal of uh, going through the Gerudo Fortress. So uh, yeah, even all these years later, it holds up really, really well. You're right. And uh, girl power. I mean, the fortress is run by women. Yes. Yeah, there's a whole... Uh, tribe of uh, warrior women and the only male involved is uh, Ganondorf and they don't even really like him so (laughs) (laughs) yep you're right on the money that's pretty funny okay moving on to the next memorable moment that would be the reveal of Sheik yes yes of course Nintendo originally did this with uh, Metroid and uh, revealing that Samus was a woman 
They did it again here with Sheik. Yes, yes, they did. They lead you to believe early on that it is a guy. I mean, it's fairly androgynous. It's kind of hard to tell, but you know, they do tend to lead you to believe that the character is male. Of course, Sheik shows up throughout various parts of the second half of the adventure, lends you a hand, teaches you some songs, helps you out here and there. And, you know, all that stuff is cool. But, yeah, then they have that uh, big reveal towards the end of the game. Now, did you see it coming? Did you know who Sheik was prior to the big surprise? You know, I don't really remember. I think that I was pretty shocked. I mean, I don't think it was, like, mind-blowing, but I definitely think it was a revelation. Because <laughs> originally when I started playing and I first encountered Sheik and I saw this mysterious character, I thought, this this is probably Princess Zelda. <laughs> And that was my belief. But then, as the game went on, I noticed, like, oh, you know what? This person has red eyes, and Zelda has blue eyes, I believe. And they probably didn't have contact lenses back then, so this is not Zelda. So then when they go and have the reveal and you find out it is Zelda, I totally managed to fool myself and tricked myself into thinking, yeah, that's not Zelda, but guess what? It's Zelda. (laughs) Yeah, and then, uh, of course, anyone that's played Smash Brothers knows that secret because yeah, that's true. you can change between the two on the fly. <laughs> yes, yes, that kind of uh, spoiled it for everybody if they had not played Ocarina of Time yet. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, that is a pretty interesting moment. You kind of do wonder, where the heck is Zelda as you're running around Hyrule as an adult? And mm-hmm. uh, sure enough, she is out fighting the countryside. Yes, she is. And you know, whether... You see it coming or not, though, I think it still is a very cool moment, just the way it's presented and, you know, shown off to people. And I think that's doubly true because it's basically immediately followed by Ganondorf being like, oh, you're Zelda. And then he captures her. And (laughs) that is quite a dramatic scene also. Yeah, you're right. You know, all that stuff definitely adds up to some of my favorite content in the game. Yep. Definitely memorable. Which, I guess, brings us to uh, sort of the end of the game and probably our last memorable moment here. And that is the final battle you have with Ganondorf. Yeah, this one's pretty epic, I think, in the grand scheme of Zelda game and bosses. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, even just the build-up to the fight is really cool. I can't say I really love that dungeon or anything, but when you get to the end there and you sort of encounter him at the top of his castle and he's, you know, playing music on his (laughs) pipe organ and he's got all the crazy stained glass windows and stuff, it just is really setting the stage perfectly for an epic conflict. Yeah, so sinister. Anyone who plays a pipe (laughs) organ in the top of a castle, watch out. (laughs) I like the idea that that's what Gandorf has been doing for the last seven years after taking over. <laughs> he, like, I'm using the Triforce to take over the world and maybe learn how to play pipe organ really good. Yeah, maybe I'll minor in pipe organ. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, the fight itself is pretty darn fun. I mean, the first half of the battle, you know, I don't think is anything exceptional. I think it's solid. Like you said, it uh, uses some of those, uh, you know, knocking back the attack mechanics that have sort of become a staple of the Zelda series. But I think it's really the second part of the battle that stands out. You think you've defeated him, and then he transforms from, you know, the human Gandorf that you've come to know over the course of this game into the monster Ganon that you are more familiar with from the past Zelda titles. That's right. He kind of becomes a pig beast. Yes, and um, probably you know much more intimidating than uh, he ever was when he was in 2D. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, you know, and it's pretty cool set atop like the ruins of uh, Castle Hyrule. 
Yep, indeed it is. Another great aspect of that fight is that Zelda actually gets involved. And so you've got Ganon, you've got Link, you've got Zelda, you got, you know, all three aspects of the Triforce all together for a final showdown that is very, very fitting for the finale of one of the most epic adventures of all time. It's true. It definitely, at that point, felt like the most epic Zelda moment up to that point. Yeah, I mean, I still absolutely love A Link to the Past, but uh, you know, some of these you know, particular moments just really, really stand out because of the presentation in this game. Yeah, totally. And that pretty much wraps up our big topic for this week. Lots of great memories over these past 20 years. Anything else you want to give a shout-out to before we wrap it up? Well, I can't believe we didn't talk about Navi at all. No, <laughs> I guess that is true. Yeah, yeah. If you want a memorable moment, yeah, Navi constantly <laughs> nagging you is certainly very memorable. Yeah, that is one that totally uh, is burned into everybody's mind, I think. Hey, listen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And then, of course, the ending for this game is actually pretty cool. I think the payoff is pretty cool. Everybody's kind of like out in this field dancing. I think there's a bonfire, maybe. Yeah, they are definitely all celebrating. Yeah, definitely. It feels like kind of like the end of uh, Return of the Jedi. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Where uh, the Ewoks are chilling. And... Well, especially in the way that, you know, everybody's celebrating, except, you know, the hero is sort of uh, off by himself doing his thing. And that's the thing is you don't really see Link celebrating with everybody else. And you don't really know what's going on. I mean, that's one of the more interesting things about the game is it does kind of have this enigmatic ending. We know Link returns to the past, but it's still open-ended in a lot of respects. In some ways, very happy, but in some ways, also very melancholy. It's true. Uh, The last moment, though, that I want to give a shout out to is the flying death pineapple. (laughs) Uh, Please do tell. (laughs) You know, I'm never really sure what that creature is supposed to be. Is it maybe a pea hat or something? But, you know, there's this one creature, you know, sort of (laughs) near the river, you know, sort of near uh, Zora's domain, I guess. Yeah, it's a pea hat. And it's like this giant flying pineapple thing with like blades on it and it can really work you over you know if uh, you know you're not careful and it hits you it can like really drain your life so you know if you're lucky you will never get to experience that but if that does happen yeah the uh the terrifying flying death pineapple beware of that it's probably scarier than ganon <laughs> watch out for the pea hats kids that's right okay I do believe that takes care of this week's big topic. If this has got you thinking nice, fuzzy memories of Ocarina of Time, by all means, go out and play it and uh, enjoy it on Wii or Wii U or GameCube or even, heck, the original N64 cartridge or Legend of Zelda 3D on the 3DS. Lots of great ways to enjoy this game and celebrate 20 years of one of the best gaming experiences ever made. Can we please get an HD remake soon, Nintendo? Yeah, that is what uh, I was saying on Twitter just the other day. I really want to be able to play this on modern consoles in HD, uh, you know, with all of the uh, 3DS features incorporated in there. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I stole that from you. <laughs> As a true Nemi. As you often do. All right. It's time to wrap up this week's episode of the podcast. But before we do so, we do have time for one more thing, and that is, naturally, a dramatic reading. This time, it is from Nintendo Power Volume 7. It is the preview of the NES game, King's Night. Guide the Mighty Knight, Rayjack, Kaliva the Magician, Bolusa the Monster, and Toby, the Kid Thief, through strange and unusual lands. 
fight bizarre and frightening creatures, pick up special items and uncover secret underground passages, advance the adventurers far enough, and they will be able to travel together. Then, rotate their positions to make them most effective. Take up the gauntlet. The challenge awaits. Wow, that's it, huh? That is it. And the thing that I like about this preview is that I can read through that entire thing and still have absolutely no idea what this game is about. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I guess that's why I didn't think it was over. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, here are these characters and they're going on an adventure, but it's like, is this a role-playing game? What exactly is it? I mean, in fairness, King's Knight is a really bizarre kind of game that does incorporate some role-playing elements with like auto-scrolling shooter elements. Right. It's definitely a, a strange title that is very much an acquired taste, but the fact they don't really try to explain what it is uh, is just uh, kind of very, very weird, in my opinion. Yeah, they probably didn't even know what to call it at that point. Like, no, they didn't have the, the genre names down yet. <laughs> or it's very possible this was not a hands-on preview. I mean, uh, there's been a lot of times that's right. at gaming magazines when you are forced into previewing something just based on screenshots. And you're like, well, I can see them shooting something, and <laughs> I know who the characters are named. Okay, whatever. And yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise if it was that sort of situation at all. Oh, good old Nintendo power. Yeah, comes with the territory. <laughs> and I do believe that does it for this week's episode of Power Pros. As always, you can find us at powerpros.podbean.com and you can follow us at Power Pros Pod on both Facebook and Twitter. You can follow me, The Hoff, on Twitter at Chris The Hoff, and you can find Pete at Burly Red Yeti. You can email us at powerprospod at gmail.com. And if you like the podcast, it would be great if you told your friends about us. Thanks for listening, everybody. For myself, Pete Bashad, Watch out! And our friend in disguise, Sheik. Say up! We will see you next time.